Scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Luke 5, 27 through 32. That's on page 910 in the Pew Bibles. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and other sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, uh, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. An elderly fellow was pulled over in the middle of the night, suspected of DUI, and the officer walks up to him and says, "Uh, Sir, where where are you going? And he says, I'm going to a lecture on uh, the effects of alcohol on the human body and the dangers of, uh, of, of alcoholism. A little bit suspicious this. He said, oh really? At one o'clock in the morning, who would be giving this lecture? He said, that would be my wife, sir. <laughs> when you think about struggles, perhaps you also immediately think, whether it's yourself, how can I be helped? I've reached out in various ways many times in the past, and I seem to still find myself in the struggle. Or maybe you think about others that are struggling, and you want to help them, and how can you do it? This morning, I'd like to remind you of some just basics in the scriptures that we just can't ever forget. They have to be the rock. It has to be the anchor that we go back to in everything and dealing with others. We like success stories. We like success stories of helping people that struggle. When we think about The Blind Side, the movie that recently was award-winning and had all kind of success and accolades, you remember the kind of wealthy family in Memphis that found out about this large, athletic young man, but... He didn't have anywhere to live. His mother, who was an addict and one of seven children, they didn't even know where she was. Remember, they took him in just to give him a meal and eventually a bed. And eventually he found a place in their hearts and in their family. They helped him finish up school and even helped him attend Ole Miss. On a football scholarship in 2009, Michael Orr was, he was recruited the first round draft of the NFL Uh, draft for the Baltimore uh, Orioles. And when we look at that story, not only did it make a best-selling New York Times best-selling book, but the movie had many, many awards that it won. You see, we like success stories, but I want you to pause for just a moment. How impressed would you have been if you saw him homeless on the streets? Would you have been drawn to him then? 
Or is it that we only are impressed with individuals once the success is proven? And keep in mind success based on our standards. You know, another book that if you've not read it, it's well worth the read. The same kind of different as me. In this book, we read about Ron Hall, and it begins especially with his wife, Debbie. Ron is a wealthy art dealer in Texas. And he's caught up in all of that scene that would go around that kind of wealth that they lived and experienced. His wife had much more of a tender heart of philanthropy. And so she'd volunteer down at a soup kitchen and she continued to beg her husband, you need to invest in more in your life. Come down and help. And finally, just to appease her, he did it. And when he did, he saw who she had been telling him about. Hard, crusted man named Denver wouldn't look at anyone, wouldn't speak to anyone, would grab his soup, sit down by himself and eat and leave. And he made it his goal. I want to get to know that man. And it took a while. And finally, he began to chisel away at the crust. And he found out that this man at a young age had jumped the train in Louisiana. He'd ridden a lot of trains to a lot of places. He'd spent 10 years of hard time in Angola prison. He didn't trust anybody. But yet, he found a place in their heart. And he found a place in their heart. They helped him find a job. They helped him find a place to live. And the success is amazing. And then, of course, the story has that twist that really gets your heart when Debbie has cancer and passes away. And now Ron and Denver are best friends. And they've written a book together. And they travel around and do motivational speaking together. We like the success stories, but would you have liked Denver if he were on the streets of of Nashville this week while you were passing by? Do you realize where all of those success stories start? Or are you only caught up in other people's successes? You like to see the end. The second greatest commandment, Matthew, the 22nd chapter, we're familiar with 37. That's the first commandment to love God is with all of our being. But then he says in 38, that is the first and great commandment. But in 39, he says there's a second great commandment. He wasn't asked which was the second. Jesus wanted to make sure that we knew which was the second. And so he said, the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you read that, isn't it interesting how easy it is to picture that neighbor that lives beside you that you've been real close to him for years? Isn't it interesting how easy it is to picture that person that maybe you went to high school together and you've kept up with them for the years and you say, oh, I love them. Yes, I love my neighbor. I love that other person. Maybe it's a coworker that you guys enjoy going to lunch together. You always keep up with each other. And yes, I love them. And so in our mind, and I hate to say this because it's so stereotypical, but in our mind, we have just this average, regular, ordinary person that we say, sure, I love them. But what about this next screen? What about when they're not so ordinary looking? What about when they're suffering with addiction? What about if they're suffering with emotional illness? What if they, they are suffering, whether it's prescription drugs or if it's illegal drugs or if it's alcohol or what if something has consumed their life where they're no longer a healthy environment individual, even in their home or in their workplace? Why is it that it's so easy for us to pull away from them, to put a long, stiff arms distance between them And then read the second greatest commandment 
and feel like we've done it. What about if instead, when he said, I want you to love one another, what if what Jesus meant by that is, I want you to love all one another's? And I'll just pause for a moment and let you think on that for a minute. I'll think on that for a minute. Reread that a few times in your mind. What if he really meant for the second greatest commandment to be that we love all one another's? The very teaching of the Good Samaritan was a result of one asking Jesus, Who is your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is your neighbor? And Jesus used the story of the Good Samaritan to say sometime it's going to be somebody that's really injured and has great need and they appear to be your enemy. Are you going to be willing to love that one another? And so the text that we have had read for us this morning reminds us of wonderful opportunities that God gives us. And as we make our way back to that, I want to remind you of what Jesus said about loving one another and setting that bar high. You remember John 13 and 34 when he says a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Remember this, as I have loved you. And so we pause and say, now we have a description. It's not just a command to love one another, but it's a description. How do we love one another? He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And and Lord, how do you love others? And I'm not saying this is the only way that the Lord loves others, but I'd like to take you back to Psalm 147 and verse 3. Psalm 147, verse 3. We're going to get back to Luke in just a moment, but if we could set this up for a minute, think with me. Here's a description of our Lord. He heals the brokenhearted And he binds up their wounds. So how does the Lord deal with individuals that are brokenhearted? Does the Lord look down and say, oh, I I just hate to be around people that, that are in sorrow. I hate to be around people in grief. I hate to be around people in struggle. It always makes me feel uncomfortable. I never leave that situation saying, oh, it's a great day. Is that your goal in life? It's to every day be able to say, it's a great day. I am emotionally happy. I'm on cloud nine. Or is our goal more to say, I want to make sure in everything I fulfill the first and second grace commandment and some days fulfill the second grace commandment. I'm going to have to be involved in the lives of people that are hurting. And yes, it's going to be a burden sometime. But I'm not going to pull away. I want to be like my Lord. I want to be able, we can't heal the way Jesus can heal. And we can't even comfort the exact way Jesus can. But we can learn. And as as much as humans can, and especially as much as humans that are adopted into the family of God can, we can have an attribute, if you will, of healing. To say, I want to be with you. Like the Good Samaritan stayed with that individual that was sick. Offered care. Offered concern. Offered resources. Do we do that? I know this room is full of individuals that do that. It's a reminder to all of us to constantly be doing it. I'm not suggesting that that this is the way to do it. Please don't misunderstand that. But if this could just be a reminder this week to look for a lot of ways to do it, I want to ask you to have kind of another homework assignment this week. I hope you benefited from reading the letter that John wrote to you last week. This week, you'll notice on the end of your pews, you have a card that is on the end of the pews. And also 
with those cards, you will see every card is alike. You'll also see there are envelopes. So if you will, be sure and pass to each person a card and an envelope. And then uh, they're on each end. And as they meet in the middle, if you will, again, pass the cards and the envelopes that are left over back to the outside so that, that the next service will have access to those cards also. You may read this card and, and obviously when you read it, you'll see it's, it's a card written to encourage somebody that's struggling. It has that beautiful verse on the inside of it from God's word that that's what God wants to do is help individuals that are struggling also. And, and so maybe, maybe you even have another card that you want to send that, that you like better. It doesn't have to be this card, but it's this that we're asking you to do this week. Will you reach out to somebody that's struggling? Their struggle may be addiction. Their struggle may be that they're incarcerated. Their struggle may be that that they're depressed. Their struggle may be that they're going through a lot of financial struggles. Their struggle may be that they're going through a lot in, in relationships. Listen, whatever the struggle is, would you write a note to let them know that you're praying for them this week and that you know that them and the great physician can get through this? Now, if you say, I don't know exactly who to write that to, this evening we'll have two boxes out at the information center. And one will be labeled RTC, and one will be labeled uh, Wilson County uh, Jail. And maybe you want to write a letter to someone who is going through recovery through Christ or someone that's incarcerated. And maybe your, your letter would say, I, I don't know exactly who you are that's receiving this, but I want you to know I've prayed for the recipient of this. And I want you to be close to God, and I want you to find the, the healing and the recovery. What is it that you would say to someone? The second greatest commandment is to love all one another's. And I hope that this little exercise can help us in some way focus on everyone, just like our Lord does. And so we have this great text that I can't help but think. You remember just a moment ago, we referred to John, the 13th chapter. Jesus was around his apostles. He just, he had just washed their feet as, as he had instituted the Passover. And now he was on his way to die on the cross. And you remember it's in between those two events that he says, I want to give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. I don't have any way of knowing what Matthew was thinking, but I can't help but wonder if I can at least have the permission to wonder out loud. Matthew is hearing Jesus say, I want you to love other people the way I have loved you. Can you imagine what that meant to Matthew? Wow. I remember, Lord, how you loved me. We just had this beautiful text read for us. How did the Lord love Matthew? Well, back then, his name was Levi. And he was a tax collector and he worked for the, for the Roman government, but he was considered by the Jewish society as a traitor because he was a Jew working for the Roman government and he would go and collect taxes. But the thing is, not only was he considered a traitor, he was put in the class, if you will, at least in thinking, not legally, but in thinking he was put in the class of, of criminals because he would go to the Jews and it was unwritten rule that they were allowed to collect the taxes that the Romans would demand, but they also were allowed to collect much more taxes than the Romans. Romans would demand and they got to keep it. So imagine if you're a Jew and you look down the road and maybe you're struggling to just put food on your table and you look down the road and this guy that is continually collecting taxes from you is a fellow Jew working for the Roman government and he 
it is so easy for him to put food on his table. He has food and food to spare. He has all he could want because he's robbing us. Can you imagine how he was viewed in society? And of all people, Jesus is looking for disciples. Now, this is a young movement. Who would you call to be a follower of yours if you were Jesus as a part of a young movement? Think about, would your mindset not be, ooh, I need to get people that other people are going to like. I need to make sure that when, when I call some disciples, and especially if I'm thinking about apostles, what if I choose 12 apostles? I need to make sure that this one that's going to be popular among the people so that those 12 can be popular leaders so this movement can really grow. Do you realize that Jesus' concern has never been about popularity? His concern has always been about doing the right thing. Loving God with all of your heart and loving your neighbor, all of them, as yourself. And so he looks over at a man and he calls him to follow. And he does. And I'd like for you to look again at verse 28. Luke 5, look at verse 28. This is the result. So he left all, rose up and followed him. And then in 29, Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. When it says he left all, what does that mean? What what did he leave? Do you realize the great sacrifice that Levi made? Levi was in a position of authority. He left that position of authority. He was also in a position where his resources, his income, would have been very, very good by their day and time standard. He left a tremendous income. He had to abandon the Roman Empire's position that they'd given him. He abandoned a nice income that had been given to him. And he also abandoned all of the peers that were a part of his sinful life that would not choose to become a part of a righteous life with the Lord. And so when it says that he left all, rose up and followed him, those were great descriptive terms. Leaving it all, sacrificing for it all, to rise up, to follow the Lord. But in the next verse, we see that his great love for the Lord caused him, you see in 29 again, then Levi gave him a great feast. And so he invites Jesus over to his house, which probably would have been a nice house. And and he invites, well, who's his friends? He invites all of his friends who are other tax collectors and sinners, which means it would have probably been other people of similar reputation, other men and other women that might have had similar sinful reputations. And and they all would have been there. And he wants them to meet Jesus. Notice again, it says he gave him a great feast. Notice his celebration. I think this is really key for us to grasp. He didn't call everybody together to say, I just want everybody here to recognize the tremendous changes I'm making in my life. And I want you guys to be impressed with me. I want to tell everybody about all the sins I've ever committed, and I want you guys to be impressed with me. I want to tell you about the income I'm leaving behind, and I want you to be impressed with me. He didn't celebrate him. He celebrated the Lord. He didn't celebrate his sin. He celebrated the Lord. 
the Lord received the glory and the emphasis. And that's the one that he wanted all of his friends to be introduced to. But then we have this third party, if you will. We have these individuals, and you know them from the scriptures here. Notice we've got the scribes in 30, the scribes and the Pharisees, and what are they doing? They're complaining. And there's three times in the book of Luke, we're going to study this one a little more in depth, and we're going to mention two others, and then the lesson is ours to, to, to live out in our life. But I want you to notice what they tend to say from time to time. So they looked in verse 30, and they said, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It made no sense to the Pharisees that he would spend his time with tax collectors and sinners. Sure, the Pharisees would say, yes, we love one another. And what they meant by that is we love people who look like us. We love people who aren't working for the Roman government and robbing from their people. We love people that look real religious and they fall right in line with everything we believe. Why would you reach out to those who do not look like us? Why would you reach out to a tax collector and a sinner? And so you and I have to be convicted to at least honestly evaluate our life. This past week and this past month, everybody that you've reached out to, if it had to be written down, the exact names of everybody you reached out to, did they all look like you? If so, why? Why is it that we struggle to love all one another's? Jesus was constantly reaching out to others that didn't look like him. And when others who were very, very religious, but deemed self-righteous, they couldn't understand it. Now, I know many of us have heard Jesus answer many times. I beg you this morning to hear it afresh. Pretend you don't have any idea what Jesus is going to say. Pretend that maybe you even think, oh, he's on the hot spot. Yeah, that is a good question. Why would somebody that's supposed to be the son of God on earth, why is he, why is he at a tax collector's house? That's a real good question. Why is he eating among sinners? And listen to his answer. It's not just brilliant. It's the heart of who Jesus is and the heart of Christianity. When he says in 31, he answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick implied those who are sick need a physician. 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who do you take to the doctor? You take somebody that's sick, somebody that's well. What do we say? I don't need to go to a doctor. And so now what is he doing? Why is he saying to these individuals, I didn't come to call the righteous. Pause there for a moment. Is he saying they're righteous? The scribes and the Pharisees are not righteous. He is not saying they're righteous. And by the way, if they were righteous, the only way they could be righteous is because he had called them. So what is he saying here? I know what other scriptures teaches. The only righteousness any of us could ever have is the righteousness that's found through Christ. Because Romans 3 and 20, Romans 3 and verse 10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. That's a paraphrase of Psalm 14 and verse 3 that tells us there is no one good, no one. And so now Jesus is saying, I'm the great physician and I've come to this earth. So why is he saying those who are well do not need a physician? Because I believe that surely everybody in this room would agree that every one of us needs the physician. So who in the world are the righteous people that don't need the great physician Jesus? 
I believe that what Jesus was doing here was talking about self-righteousness. Individuals that declare themselves self-righteous, Jesus is saying, I can't help them. I can heal a lot of people of a lot of things, but I can't help a self-righteous person. Well, Lord, who's going to come to you? Everybody that knows that they struggle with sin. Everybody that knows they struggle with sin. He says, I'm their physician. I'm the one that can heal them. And so our challenge is to say, do we love all one another and realize that in many ways we're all very, very similar. We're all in need of a great physician. There was another time that Jesus was accused of being close to a sinner. Remember in Luke, the seventh chapter, the woman comes in. Jesus has been invited to Simon's house. He did not give him a warm invitation. That makes you think that it probably wasn't a warm invite that says, Hey, I respect you, Jesus. I want you to have me in my house because I respect you as a great teacher. He didn't do any of the things in their Eastern culture that they would have done to welcome someone when they come to his house. Remember, he didn't wash his feet. He didn't give him the kiss of greeting. He definitely didn't anoint his head with oil. And instead, this woman comes in. Remember in Luke, the seventh chapter, she comes in and she begins with her tears to wash his feet. And she takes her hair and wipes it and she takes her ointment and she anoints his, his feet. And you remember what his response is. Look at the seventh chapter and in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet. See, the idea is I'm inviting him in to see if he's really a prophet of God. Okay, now I know he's not a prophet of God. Simon, the Pharisee, Simon, how do you know that he's not a prophet of God? Oh, well, that's easy. He would know who And what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And verse 37 identified her as a woman in the city who was a sinner. In other words, this is a woman who has a manner. In other words, there is a reputation that she continually lives in sin. Most scholars would think that she was a prostitute. It doesn't say that for sure, but there was some kind of manner of sin that she lived in in the city that now he's saying, I tell you what, I know that he's not a prophet of God. How do you know he's not a prophet of God? Because he is letting a sinner like her wash his feet. Okay, Simon, let's, let me see if I got this right. If she is a sinner of that kind of reputation, you're saying that godly people would have nothing to do with her. That's right. We write those kind of people off. You drive down Dickerson Road. What goes through your mind when you see a prostitute? Does it break your heart and you pray? And consider ways that you and the church, God's people, ought to be reaching out to save those souls that are broken? There's so much more broken in their lives than just their sexual sin. And I have to ask myself, do I even care? And I read this story 
And I learned that Jesus did. And I learned that there were some very, very self-righteous religious people that didn't. You remember the result of this story was that Jesus forgave her. And look down at verse 50 how it ends. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can you imagine? This lady had probably not known peace for a lot of years. And now, now she's met one that can bring her peace. Why? Because Jesus really did love one another. Do we love all one another's? Or have we selected a group that we've defined as our comfort zone and that's the ones we really love? And everybody else... We don't give them a second thought. But finally, I'd like for you to think about Luke, the 15th chapter. If I say that, many of you will probably think because it's considered one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. Remember, it's the parable with three stories. There's the 99 sheep, but one is lost. There's the 10 coins, but one is lost. There's the two sons, but one is prodigal. And it's just, it's just a powerful, beautiful reading. But you remember, all of this reading is about rejoicing when the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son is found. And it's not just rejoicing on earth, although every time it is among God's people, it's rejoicing from the heavenly angels to the heavenly host of God himself. And so there's this powerful story that warms our heart about the lost. But do you remember why this story was taught? It wasn't that Jesus was saying, even though it would be true if anyone was lost. But the setting wasn't, oh, picture one of your good friends that's a lot like you. And they happen to stumble away and you leave the 99 and you go for that one friend that looks like you. That wasn't the setting. The setting was, and we don't have time to get into it, but the 14th chapter, there was powerful teachings about, are you humble enough? Are you humble enough to have a feast and not invite your friends that can invite you back and not invite the wealthy? Are you humble enough to invite people that are the poor, the blind, the maimed, that they can never invite you back and you'll only be paid back in eternity? Are you willing to go and be a part of the kingdom and not make excuses because I have land that I have bought? Oh, I have five yoke of oxen. I've got a lot of equipment to take care of. I have a wife and a family. The question is, would we do the Lord's work even when we have to leave the comfort zones of our property and our possessions and maybe even our family? And you look at all that and you say, who would follow Jesus? Three times he said, you can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple if you don't love me more than you love your family. You can't be my disciple if you're not willing to take up the cross and follow me. He says, you can't be my disciple if you won't forsake all and follow me. Who would follow Jesus after those kind of lessons? Now, this is all on one Sabbath. He's preaching this type of lesson. And I'd like for you to notice in Luke, the 14th chapter, the last verse, verse 35 says... The last sentence in it says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now ignore the chapter break. It's a very, if there's one chapter break I could remove out of the Bible, this would be it. It's a horrible chapter break. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. Now the question is, who's going to move up closer? After Jesus has demanded all that, who's going to move up closer to say, Hey, I like what you're saying. Could, could we hear more of this sermon? Well, here's some more. Look at 15 and 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke the parable, and it's the parables that we just talked about. So why did he teach the parable of the lost son and 
the lost coin and the lost sheep. He taught it because tax collectors and sinners of the city had moved closer saying we want to hear. And over here to the side were the elite self-righteous individuals that said, I can't believe that he is talking to them. And Jesus has to say, hey, can I put you guys on hold for just a minute? I'm glad you come near to hear. You can listen to this, but I need to talk with them for a minute. Let me tell you how valuable every soul is. It's like the one sheep that's lost and found. It's like the coin that's lost and found. It's like the son that's prodigal and comes back home. That's how valuable every soul is. So what we call one of the most tender, endearing stories of all the Bible, the story of the prodigal son was told because self-righteous people didn't think that a tax collector should have the opportunity to be healed. Yesterday, I pulled into an auto store. As I pulled in, I thought it was interesting that there was a car or two in the parking lot with the hoods raised. Guys from the auto place were out there looking at things and they were talking. And it just dawned on me. I thought, isn't it interesting that if I were going down the road and I saw a car with a hood raised, I would think, oh, poor, poor person. They're broke down the side of the road. Or even if I pulled in the church parking lot and I saw somebody with a hood raised, I thought, wow, that's, that's tough. That's a tough situation. Wasn't it interesting, though, when I saw someone at the auto parts place with a hood raised, I said, that's good. It's kind of what you expect, right? They're there to get help, and that's the place you go to get help. Or is it that struggling people ought to be found and we say, that's good. That's really good. That's, that's where they ought to be going to get help. That's, that's great. And I wonder how oftentimes struggling people feel like the only place I'm not welcome is around religious people. I don't think that's true here. But I know this. I don't ever want to be around a church that that is true. Because I want to be like Jesus. This morning, if you're struggling, join the club. There's not a person here that's figured out how to whip sin. All of us are here for the same reason. We need a great physician. And all of us are here because we love God and we love others. All others. And if there's anything we can do this morning to help you move closer to God, we'd love to help you. If you're ready right now to be baptized into Christ or if you want to come back and be restored or if you have things you're dealing with in your life and you need somebody to talk with you and pray with you and study with you and walk with you, We're willing to do whatever we can possibly do to walk together and to love all others. If we can help you come as we stand, as we sing.